Hi everyone. In this episode, I speak to Jonathan Hannum, the co-founder and managing director of Tonga Group and managing partner of Tonga Ventures. Today, we talk a bit about his career and background, prop tech themes and opportunities in the Asia Pacific, and advice for startups in the industry. This is the Borderless Podcast, and let's get straight into it. So your background is Swedish, but... My wife's Swedish. Swedish connection came in... Wow. I actually met my wife in China. Okay, well... Um, I'm Australian, obviously, so I studied in Melbourne and uh, did a town planning degree. And when I finished my studies in 1992, um, some of your listeners may remember that the Australian property market was in absolute oversupply. So at that time, you could rent the Rialto building for a 10-year lease, five years rent-free. And 200, uh, I mean, the rents were $200 a, a square meter and uh, very, very low, low cost of entry, but there were no jobs. Mm. And so as a town planner, um, I was working in a local council, Sandringham Council in Bayside, and uh, was told my, my job was no longer a salaried position and uh, decided that there was a good time to travel. So I'd always been interested in China. So in 93, I actually um, headed, to, headed over to Beijing um, where I had some friends and some connections. And um, quite quickly, I could see that there was there was a lot going on in, in Beijing. Yeah. So post Tiananmen Square, um, businesses were starting to return to the city. And um, I liked it. I wanted to try and find a way to work mm-hmm. and to, to, to actually stay in, in Beijing. Why China in the first place? Um, I think it would have been quite a culture shock just moving from Australia to China, seeing it at a very, very early stage, I guess, post yeah. Square. So a lot of people were doing the sort of traditional, you know, London Great. route, Europe. Europe, Europe. So I thought I'll do that, but I'll do it overland. Okay. And so the plan was to actually take the Trans-Siberian, and wow. and I did actually get all the way to the edge of Mongolia, but um, I'd had a discussion with a university about um, a role in Beijing, and with Tsinghua University. Mm. So um, it was a postgraduate program. And it took a bit of negotiation and uh, a little bit of convincing, but I managed to join a, a, a Tsinghua University program where I was uh, one of three foreigners and we were paid a fantastic 15 renminbi per day. Um, it was a huge... Uh, actually, we got five renminbi in cash and the rest was in food vouchers. So, um, you know, almost a dollar. And um, But it gave me a visa and that was the key. So I had a a six-month visa in China. Was that a postgraduate studies in real estate? Or? In urban planning. Okay. So in the School of Urban Pla- Planning. And we were doing actually residential um, developments all over the city. And it was the first time that uh, we actually, we were going out and interviewing residents mm. on what they wanted in their apartments. And it was fascinating. Um, after one minute, people opened up. What? I want gas. I want a lift. I want bicycle parking. I want childcare. And uh, it was fascinating over the next couple of years to see the developments actually get built exactly as we designed them. Um, it was pretty fun. But um, I'm, at that time, so 93, I managed quite fortunate to meet quite a wealthy Singaporean venture capitalist. Um, and uh, he offered me a, a much higher salary, um, $1,000 per month to become his chief rep for uh, Beijing. And uh, he was a really interesting guy. He was in the shipping business, but he was uh, backing China. So he 
wanted to start investing into um, emerging companies across all over China. So very quickly, we had about 15 joint ventures and a couple of them were real estate related. So I had an industrial park in a city called Yixing, which is just off Lake Taihu. And uh, we also had a, a development project in Beijing. And uh, his very interesting guy, Brian Chang, his name was, he had a, he's now got a massive listed company in uh, Singapore, Yangjigang Shipyard. But um, he, he said to me that you just have to believe in this. This story is, this is, this is the future. And, um, you know, because I was new young and wanting to experience things. And he said, well, you've designed and built that industrial park. Go and sell it. So I went to Hong Kong and I met all the agents and there was nobody, there was still no agencies in China at the time. And uh, we decided to do it ourselves. So we marketed a uh, 73 uh, hectare industrial park. We actually managed to sell almost all of it to overseas Chinese in Singapore, Malaysia and in the US. And it was my first real entry into the real estate market. And um, at that time, First Pacific Davies was looking to open an office in Beijing. And um, it seemed like the logical shift. I always had liked real estate. And uh, I moved across to First Pacific Davies in 1995. We got the first license for real estate. It was um, actually officially number one. And what we had was actually very quickly, we managed all of the residential compounds as China was opening up. So we had access to all of the key decision makers, the heads of Boeing, the heads of GE, who were coming in and we would handle their housing and then we would handle their office. So the business, it was just phenomenal growth. We were sole agent on everything. Um, China World Trade Center, Kerry Center, many of the major developments in Beijing. And uh, the business was brilliant. Um, but uh, then competition by about 97 started to come in. And then the, uh, in 99, the pollution was, mm. was pretty bad. Mm. So at that point, we decided, I'd met my Swedish wife now. <laughs> <clears throat> so they decided to actually make the move to, uh, to leave China. Mm. And with First Pacific Davies, now Savills, um, there was an opportunity to move to firstly Manila and then to Singapore. So I took that chance. Mm. How do you find that move from... China. I guess first of all, where did you learn? So you know, man, you're, you're fluent in Mandarin. Um, yep. How did you do that? <laughs> yeah. So um, for my, um, I did night school in '93. Okay. Mm-hmm. I did uh, at Jingji Guanli which was a foreign cadres management college, mm-hmm. and um, that was an intensive Mandarin course. Mm-hmm. But then just living and working there, mm-hmm. and so I, my Mandarin is. Uh, it's like a Beijing taxi driver. I have a beautiful Beijing hua, Beijing accent. But um, yeah, no, it's just through with you know by seven years in China, it was uh, it was pretty good. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Just given, I don't think there's that many, especially at the time, that many foreigners going to China, working there, picking up the language, and then having a career, some sort of a career there. I think that's quite interesting, especially in the context of the. Australian market there's not that much Asian experience on the ground um, but just in regards to so just keep going in regards to your time in Manila and Singapore yeah so um, Singapore was obviously the hub for Asia and 
great place to have a family. Um, but I also had, uh, I wanted to move from real estate agency and consulting to investment management. Um, so with, um, I did an MBA and uh, night school largely, but uh, you know, with my day job. But, um, and then used that to actually help move into the investment management right. side. And then uh, there was an opportunity to run a, a fund in Singapore called the IP Fund, ING Pidemco. Um, Pidemco is now Capital Land. So we had a joint venture fund that was investing in opportunistic real estate across Asia. So perfect platform. Um, we made investments in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in, in Malaysia, Thailand. Um, we had fantastic pool of assets across the region. And uh, yeah, it was a, a great way into real estate investment. And then from there, you moved to Sweden? Was that no, I, um, <laughs> so I had a, a very long discussion with um, one of the investors that we'd been talking to, Adia, Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. And um, Adia was looking to expand its Asian uh, property um, aspirations. Um, it took some time to convince my wife and to make that move to the Middle East. Um, we went out there a couple of times and visited it, but it was just a phenomenal opportunity. So um, That was in Abu Dhabi? Abu Dhabi. Okay. So I was head of Asia for the real estate team at, at uh, Idea. And during that sort of period from 2005 to 2008, we, um, we made a lot of investments and we invested initially into funds and then did um, a lot of joint ventures, um, so direct type transactions, 50-50 transactions um, with most of the big players in the region. It was a you know, perfect time to invest in 2005, 2006. Um, most markets did pretty well. And also the nature of the investment by, by develop, you know, doing joint ventures with developers when we were well funded, um, most of those assets were quite resilient through the financial crisis, which you know, came 2008, 2009. And then came Sweden. Okay. So I moved to Sweden. Um, Adia bought a major shopping center um, in the center of Sweden, in the center of Stockholm. Were you, were you involved with that one? <laughs> um, one of my colleagues was, uh, he came to me one day and said, what do you think of this? And I said, you have to buy it. It's the best <laughs> asset in all of Sweden. Um, Stura Gallery in a beautiful um, historic central you know, mixed use asset with um, fantastic retail and commercial. It was the perfect asset for a, an investor like an Ardia. Um, so I was uh, not involved in the acquisition, but uh, um, certainly I was uh, supportive of it. Sure. But um, yeah, there was an opportunity to move, opportunity to, move to Sweden. And um, so in Sweden, I worked with two different firms. I worked firstly with Catella Real Estate and then with Areem, which is a uh, investment manager that is... Uh, really great it was blackstone's operating partner at the time and uh, we raised a quite a significant fund to invest across the initially in sweden and then across the nordics okay and then and then and then Merbach. Merbach back in uh, then you made the move back to australia yeah so i was part of uh, i guess sue lloyd Hurwitz's, um when sue was hired as ceo i came back with her okay. and uh, how was that uh, how was that relationship formed in the first place? How do you? Yeah, so other? Sue and I had been working, um, so actually for, for some time, as when I was in Abu Dhabi, we had a lot of investments mm -hmm. with uh, with uh, MGPA, and Sue was actively uh, working with MGPA. So uh, we had been working together for some time, and 
I guess the coming back to Australia was the idea was to try to help with the uh, um, the changes that Sue wanted to bring into Mervac. Um, you know, Mervac is a very different company today um, from what it was in 2012. Mm. A great focus on um, innovation, a great focus on individuals, mm. um, but also performance. So um, as the head of, I had the head of capital role, so bringing in institutional capital and the discipline that institutional capital requires mm. into investments. And we had some fantastic uh, projects. So um, managed to bring in groups in the US, groups from China, investment partners, but really to broaden um, Mervac's capital base. Mm-hmm. Probably some younger people listening to this, they may want to broaden their career paths. They may want to go to Asia, Europe. What, what recommendations would you give them in terms of career advice? Yeah. So it's an interesting one. So um, the way I see Australia and China at the moment, yeah. so um, we still have too many groups in Australia that think of China as uh, it's almost like China 101. Mm. This you know, China is a very advanced and developed uh, economy, and the opportunities with China are, are phenomenal. So, um, you know, rather than for someone to go to a Singapore or, or to a you know, perhaps a Hong Kong, the real opportunities are if you can embed yourself in the emergence of China. Mm. And um, you know, I've I've been, I guess, always. Yeah open to new ideas and you know if you look at where i've moved it's it, there's been trends of you know, i did china first and it was a great way to grow my personal experience um singapore was a fantastic base for my to have a family mm. um it's a perfect hub with the emergence of new capital coming from the middle east mm. that led to a really fantastic opportunity to uh, to actually invest so i think i guess it's be willing to back yourself mm-hmm would be the, the comment to, to, to your listeners. Uh, and I've, I've had a couple of sort of you know, goes at this as well, of going out on your own. Mm. So you know, Taronga is now nearly five years old. Mm. Um, so as a, a business, you know, the first one or two years tend to be the toughest of, of developing a new business. But the ability to back yourself and be patient because it actually takes time to, to make change. Mm. Um, if we'd given up on Taronga two, after two years, it would have been such a waste mm. because we've now had um, such a great run. Mm. That would so, have been quite, actually, just going on to setting up Taronga, that would have been quite a change working for pension funds, really big companies to doing your own thing. Um, maybe we just dive into Taronga now, I think, just um, yeah. how that started and where it is now, I guess. So I guess um, I've always wanted to have my own business was was a, a, a driver so even from the early discussions with my you know, singaporean um, venture capital uh, manager or boss in in china so learning all the elements that you need to run your own business so that you can have those components um i did try it once before in 2008 so post financial crisis i tried to try it we had a, a business that was called cornerstone ream we actually got to about six people and we were going pretty well but with the onset of the financial crisis, yeah. it was it was just too hard. Um, so that you know, did we fail? Well, we we didn't succeed. Um, so Taronga, what we we started was a a business that was designed to really bridge the gap between emerging 
technology companies that are looking to impact the built environment and the real estate sector and all of the major corporates and owners who are struggling with innovation. So we slot in between. And, it, and it's really designed to have the full suite of offerings. So we have a fund that can invest into companies. Um, we have a growth program which helps those companies scale. And we have an advisory business that provides implementation support to corporates. So if you bring that all together, the idea is that we create company after company and then we help those companies with access to the major portfolios across the region. Now, if that emerging company has a customer, such as a Lendlease or a Dexus, a PGIM, then that customer relation brings them revenue, which makes them more sustainable, which allows them to grow. And then it becomes a, a beautiful circle because our partners get the benefit of getting these early technologies within their portfolios yeah. first. Yeah. And we're very financially driven. So we ask each of the emerging companies, you know, what real financial impact will this have on an ISPT, for example? What will this actually do to Australian Unity's um, aged care portfolio? And if they can't answer that from a financial point of view, it makes it more difficult for us to invest. So we've now made uh, now 15 investments. We've got um, assets that are in the energy space. Um, so energy and sustain sustainability is a huge focus. We've got a really interesting pool of construction tech style transactions. Um, so in Australia, for example, we still have too many construction deaths. The technology is there to prevent this. Every board needs to be aware of that. So we're very actively presenting this, this company, Unomia, uh, to the market. Mm -hmm. And then even most recently, so we've got a business that has fantastic heat sensor, which allows you to check temperatures. So IoT. Yeah. But it, it is actually, it's a thermal sensor that is, uh, it's vastly more cost efficient than the ones you see in a Singapore airport, Hong Kong airport. And we're rolling that out right now, a rapid fever scanner. So when you, the business is called Calumino. And when we first invested into it, we thought it was just interesting for the aged care space. But now it has, because of coronavirus, it actually has much broader broader market. Obviously, you mentioned construction tech, uh, sustainability. What other what other big um, themes themes do you see yeah. in the prop tech startups? So for us, the, the the data is everything. So we want to. We had a great discussion with um, our corporate partners. So um, for for our growth program, we had all of the key players from Lendlease, Dexus, ISPT, PJM, Australian Unity in one room, and we had the. Uh, um, a Australia, New Zealand CEO of Facebook discussing market customer interactions. And there was a great comment. So he said, you know, if you could ask one question about your customer, what would it be? And so each of the groups, they all had different viewpoints. They'd like to know, was the tenant's business going well? Is the tenant going to renew the, the lease? Um, and the discussion sort of worked its way around the room. And he said, well, you know, we want to know everything, right? So not just one element. We want to know the journey of the decision maker on their way to work. We want to know where they're coming from. We want to know what they like and dislike. We want to know all the staff members that are coming into the premise. And if you take that 
whole world approach, um, you'd actually treat real estate really differently. So um, we're starting to see our partners become more sophisticated in understanding that their customer isn't just the person that signs the lease. It's actually the entire ecosystem of people that come into the premise on any one day. So if we take in Sydney, we have um, over 50,000 people per day coming into Barangaroo. Imagine how much information we can extract from that pool of people. Actually, with, with just the existing technology, we're scanning into buildings. Um, we don't need to move to facial recognition technology <laughs> like, like, China. Like, like China, right? But um, it's, it's that information that is actually quite valuable. And it's, it's, um, I think the, the more that we can collect and understand about people, the better we can make our, our buildings. And just with some of these uh, prop tech startups that you're seeing, what are the biggest challenges they're facing and what advice do you think you could give them? So we're not allowed to use the term prop tech. Oh, really? Okay. We call it real tech. Real tech, okay. Real tech is any technology that impacts the real estate sector and built environment. But we we have broadened it. So prop tech for us is very much like a, a vertical for a building. But if you think about real estate, it's actually about mobility. It's about the infrastructure that connects our, our cities. It's about the way we move between buildings. It's... um. It's actually much broader than just that one vertical. So, um, yeah, the companies that we're investing into, for many of them, they face firstly a shortage of capital. Um, so in Australia, there's quite a lot of early stage capital, seed funding, angel investors. But it's when they get to the next stage of growth capital that we, we have a gap and that's where we're, we're looking to fill. So we're sitting in that sort of growth capital space. Um, Part of our program is quite fascinating. We actually run the founders through um, with KPMG, um, a program that allows them to understand themselves mm. a little bit more. So that for, for us as investors, the key determinant of a success of a business is the founder's well-being. Well mm. If they're healthy, sleeping well, they're able to manage the pressures of their business, then that will produce a much better company longer term. And the pressure within the startup world is pretty high. So your days are you know, full of deep troughs and dark <laughs> darkness um, and great opportunities as well. Yes. So how do we manage that so that we have longer-term success yeah. for these businesses? That's a key component yeah. of what we're doing. I think that's a really good um, point on sort of that mental well-being or just well-being in general, health, making sure you look after yourself. Um, obviously, you've been through, through a similar process with starting Tarongo, how difficult it is to push through, to keep going, to back yourself. Um, I think that's really important as a founder, especially if you're not seeing quote-unquote success, I guess. Um, I think it's, it can be quite difficult at times. Yeah. So. so I think um, a lot of founders are individual. So there's one founder, and that's that's actually quite, quite hard. So I've had the benefit of having Avi Naidu as a co-founder of the business. We have very different skill sets. And so the combination of the two is, is actually, we can actually debate how we are approaching things. Um, but I think the, the key here is that you need to have the resilience to be patient because as a, you know, starting your own business, you're moving a lot faster than everybody else because you're under the pressure of, of time. Mm. Whereas others, um, you know, for example, some of the corporates are slow to innovate 
because they don't feel the pressure to innovate. The buildings are still operating. Everything is still working. Um, but that, that's starting to change. And the prop tech industry in within just going back to the prop tech in the Asia, real tech, so real, sorry, real tech in within the whole Asia Pacific region. Yeah. Um, do you think companies have been slow to get on board? Like, what, what are you seeing in terms of um, investment, general investments, and themes you're getting, getting out of Asia? Yeah. So it's actually not well known, but sixty percent of global venture capital in real estate technology is in Asia, right? And that's a, that's a stat that has. Uh, We've been following. So we, what we're seeing is obviously China is a huge component of that. But markets like Japan, India, um, there's a huge focus on efficiency. Um, and many, so what we see in Asia is that many of the groups are actually investing quietly in this space. And they're actively working on their own portfolios. Um, they're not as public as they are in the US. Um, they're doing it at the asset level and so one of the key features of the asian market is we have a lot of family operated large real estate groups um, they're surprisingly innovative and the next generation that's coming through in those family-owned businesses are very innovative we're seeing their names pop up on investments all over the place um, so if we sort of work around the region so in in japan mitsui fudasan is extremely active has a their own fund investing into this space. Um, in China, we've seen Vanka and Ping'an as leaders in that in that market. And of course, you've got the fantastic growth of the Chinese tech businesses, the Alibabas and the, the like. Um, in Hong Kong, it's, um, it's a little bit more traditional, and that's where we're seeing more activity from some of the family-backed groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and Singapore, Capital Land has been extremely active. Mm-hmm. Keppel. Um, so you're getting those major regional players that are taking a position that real estate technology and innovation is just a part of business as usual. So as they dealt with energy and sustainability over the last five years, now they're looking to be market leaders in innovation and technology. Um, in Australia, also quite active. So um, we've seen probably even in the last 12 months, a much greater shift into this space. Um, we're quite fortunate. We're the first fund in Asia, so we are the you know, the first mover in this space. Um, but we expect there to be competitors, um, and we actually work pretty closely with other VC firms. So in this in the VC space, unlike the real estate space, it's often quite collaborative. If I've made an investment in something, and someone like an Airtree or a Nab Ventures comes into it, then of course, it's a benefit to my investors. And it's the same for them because we bring together this sort of different skill set and different network. Um, and we do share deal flow quite often. I think Taronga is in a good place. It's given your connections to Asia, Europe. Um, I was reading an article recently where they were saying, I think it was in the AFR, they were saying overseas expats that have come back to Australia, their overseas experience isn't valued by local companies. Do you have any... Do you agree with that statement? Do you think that's true or false? Obviously, you've had benefits out of it, but in the corporate world, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, so one, I won't say who said it to me, but when <laughs> I first returned to Mervac, and I'd been overseas for 20 years, wow. um, it was almost like I that 20 years was, was not of any value. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so it was, it was like, oh, what have you been doing? Oh, oh yeah, that's, that's, that, it was fascinating. Mm. So I think um, it is when you are overseas, the transition back to your home country is always something mm. that you think about. And you can have a plan, but it, you know, it often doesn't work the way you think. I have a lot of friends that are still in China from when we were living in China in the 90s. They haven't managed to to move back because it is quite quite a hard shift back into a you know a mainstream. So I think it's it, it's a really great great question. The um the the thing that we've done is we've we've moved quite we've moved five or six times now. Yeah. So um, that feeling of you know would we want to move again? Um, possibly, possibly. But it is, it is always something that is in the back of your mind of how to manage that transition mm-hmm. back. So I was fortunate that I came back with a major corporate, with a major role, and that certainly made it easier mm-hmm. from a transition point of view. But um, it, it, it isn't mm-hmm. as it's easy. easy. Yeah, yeah, it's not easy. Okay. And just, um, I think we're running out of time, but let's just wrap things up. Um, what's the future of Taronga next you know, couple of years? Uh, obviously, we have you know major events happening like COVID nineteen. Um, how are you managing that, and um, what are you doing going forward? I guess. Yeah, to some extent, um, if you think of COVID nineteen and you look back at SARS, you look back at the global financial crisis. People are making short term decisions right now based on on these events, but the actual longer term vision doesn't change, right? So. You can make the short-term, you know, issues for safety and health and whatever. But to, to my point of view, this is the actual time to move yeah. faster in Asia right now because there's less competition, and it's quite contrarian view. So, mm-hmm. in the past, so during SARS, we um, we made one of our best investments ever for uh, the fund that I was managing. It was a bit risky. We flew to Hong Kong to complete the transaction. Mm-hmm. There was nobody on the flight. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of the most fantastic financial returns from an investment because we were the only person that could complete the deal. So, um, you know, take the personal precaution, but this is actually probably for this generation the biggest opportunity right now mm-hmm. to actually make a move into these markets. Um, and that's what we're doing. So for Taronga Ventures... Um, we're already in discussions on opening an office in Singapore. Um, we're in licensing discussions to to have a VC fund in Singapore. Um, we've had our first China hire. And so expansion during this period, it's something that the countries that you're working with note and remember. So um, you know, we are actively pushing into Singapore and we're working with um, Singapore's IMDA, working with EDB. Economic Development Board, um, Infocom Media Development Association, Association, IMDA. Um, so we are actively working with these groups right now. We're also working on how to bring our entire cohort of companies into Singapore. So business will continue. Um, it doesn't, you know, it's, at the moment it looks like it's quite difficult with COVID, but you need to take the chance with these opportunities to to actually show those markets that you are you're actually going to be around for the longer term i was i had a conversation recently about australian companies that overall they're quite conservative especially when you get to the list of levels in regards to expanding overseas 
uh, especially Asia, I think maybe they might spend one or two years there and then sort of drop off. Yeah, we've seen it constantly. So a major Australian bank goes into Asia, big announcement, yeah. and then the next CEO comes along and says, we're coming out of Asia. What, why is that? Is, this, is that just short-term thinking? It is short-term thinking. And the actual challenge is that when you are the next CEO and you want to re- return to those markets, mm. everyone that in that market remembers, mm. oh, yeah, you guys were here before. Um, that license that you want, well, you know, <laughs> we'll think about it. So I think, you know, that's probably from a you know, from an Australian point of view, you know, we have this fantastic opportunity now. We have so many Asian students in Australia that have to become our next level, our next lever for growth yeah. in the region. Um, that's, that's I think, the, uh, the area of opportunity. We're 20 years into the Asian century currently. We really haven't, outside of some of the exports, we haven't really taken or done much within Asia. Um, you know, countries like Singapore, Capital Land, they've invested in China, what, 20 years ago. And they invest in Vietnam, what, I don't know, 10 years ago. Like, they're, they're really pushing, um, you know. I mean, obviously, it's out of necessity. They're a small country. But I think Australia has the capacity to do something similar. Yeah. So we take our superannuation industry. It's mm. one of the biggest pools of global capital. It's still very much domestic. That is, um, I mean, and Asia is actually on our doorstep. So, um, you know, some of the countries that have superannuation or pension plans, they don't allow them to invest in their own, their own market. So an Adia does not invest in Abu Dhabi. GIC doesn't generally invest into Singapore. It's about managing the risk of the sovereign funds of the, of the country. And so, therefore, diversification is a key focus. Um, I, I think that our super funds should be doing more in, in Asia. Hopefully we'll see some soon. All right, mate. Um, just um, we're gonna wrap things up now. What any any last words you want to say? Any final words? Any pearls of wisdom, advice, etc. Pearls of wisdom. So, um, you know, if I look back on my journey, um, this sort of there's been a a direction of wanting to experience new things, mm-hmm. and I guess the you know, some people might think it's risky, and you know that it's you. You move to a country that you, you know, don't actually speak the language. Yeah, you're crazy. No, you're crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. But the opportunities that that has yeah. created. So you know, by making the move to China, I fast tracked my career. Um, when a country is growing at that time, China was growing twenty percent per annum. You, as an individual, you were growing just through your knowledge and what you were learning, and everything was was booming, right? Um, that was risky, but the opportunity that that led to was was phenomenal and you stuck on that for so long as well that was what seven years in china yeah yeah but it was fun right yeah. so um and it was only it was really only when the pollution got mm. tough that we decided to move mm. so i think it's having that that um i guess the outlook of wanting to experience things is is that's what life's all yeah, about i think so completely agree mate that's right. my pearl of wisdom <laughs> alright mate I think that's all for today uh, where can people reach out to you if they want to know a bit more about Taronga or you know maybe they have their own startup they're thinking of where's the best place to contact you what, what can our audience do for you as well so we are actively looking for investments across the region mm-hmm. and um, so if people are looking for funding um, we're very much seen as strategic capital mm-hmm. um, we are probably quite slow in our investment process we like to see that the business has traction with 
many of our investors and corporate partners. But um, they can contact us through LinkedIn. It's very open. Um, you can register transactions on our website. We have a portal that people can just register and it comes th- straight through to our investment team. So that's tarongagroup.com. And uh, yeah, they're happy to speak to any of your, your listeners. All right, cool. All right, thanks for joining us today, mate. All right, have a good one. Thank you. Cheers. Bye.